We read God's Word tonight in Matthew chapter 27. That's not, for the most part, an Easter chapter. Matthew 28 is the Easter chapter, but I want to read Matthew 27 because there's a little bit of Easter, as it were, planted back in chapter 27, and that will be our text tonight. We'll begin reading in Matthew 27, verse 19. The he at the beginning of the verse is Pilate. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. The he is Pilate. This is God's word. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had platted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And they set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God. 
come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour, that is from noon until three. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they had heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And that's how far we read God's Word tonight. That's our text. At the end of verse 51, the earth did quake. This is on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And the rocks rent. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept, arose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Everybody, it seems, almost everybody, is familiar with everything about Easter. Who doesn't know what happened on Easter Sunday morning? Even non-Christians probably know most of the history of what took place on Easter Sunday morning. Of course, Jesus arose from the dead before the stone was rolled away. Then the angels came and rolled the stone away. And then the two Marys and a couple others early in the morning, just as the sun was coming up so they could see, came to the tomb to finish the preparation of the body of Jesus for His burial. Everyone knows this, what happened. Everyone knows that Mary Magdalene got there first, turned around and ran to the disciples to tell them Jesus isn't there. Just about everyone knows that the other women went into the tomb, saw the angels, heard their messages, And then they ran back to tell the disciples what happened. Almost everyone knows that Jesus appeared to the women. Almost everyone knows that the guards went now 
terrified to report to the authorities that Jesus was gone and that they saw an angel. And almost everyone knows that they plotted the story, the cover-up, that they were sleeping and the disciples came to steal Jesus' body away. Almost everyone knows that Jesus appeared later that day to the disciples on the way to Emmaus. Almost everyone knows almost everything that happened on that first resurrection Sunday. But what almost no one knows is one very important thing that happened on that resurrection Sunday morning and afternoon and evening and the next day and the next day and the next day. Maybe. We don't know how long. And that's what our text describes. On Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, Jesus was crucified at 9. It was light until noon. It was dark until 3. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, gave up the ghost. There was a great earthquake. And in that earthquake, the ground was ripped open and the graves exposed the bodies of saints who had been buried. And for the rest of the afternoon and evening and all that night, those bodies lay dead in the graves. And all day Saturday, and all night Saturday night, until Sunday morning after Jesus arose, many of those dead bodies came up out of the graves and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Who thinks about that on Easter Sunday? We all think about those things that are recorded in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and the end of Luke and the end of John. We all know the history that's recorded there. But very few of us realize that there's a little bit of the history of Easter transplanted back into Matthew 27, not for convenience sake, because there was nowhere else really to write this in Matthew's mind, not for that reason, but for a reason we'll see in the course of the sermon. A little bit of Easter's history transplanted back into the history of the crucifixion. And that's what I want to call your attention to tonight. When the graves opened, saints arose. When the graves opened, saints arose. Let's see in the first place that amazing sign. Really? Really? There were others that rose in addition to Jesus? Yes. That's an amazing sign. Let's see in the second place the significance of that, the antithetical significance, that is, it's both positive and negative. And then in the third place, the holy recipients. The amazing sign, the antithetical significance, and the holy recipients. The facts of this sign are very simple, but utterly amazing. What happened here is easy enough for the littlest children to understand. Right at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, children, look, Right when God reached down His hands from heaven into the temple 
and took hold of the top part of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place and ripped the veil right at that time there was an earthquake and while God's hands were down as it were from heaven, He also shook the earth and ripped open the graves and exposed for everyone to see who would go by a cemetery those dead bodies lying there dead. That's the sign. That's the amazing sign. But then added to that is that on Sunday morning, some of those who were dead now became alive, climbed out of those graves, and went into the city and appeared unto many. I wish there were a dozen other questions that you would ask about this that were answered in the Bible, but they aren't. There's enough here, though, for us to understand the significance, but think of all of the questions you would like to ask that Matthew doesn't answer. Were these graves in a cemetery only right near Golgotha where Jesus was buried? Or were these graves opened on the other side of Jerusalem too? Because you can't imagine that there were graves only in one part of the city. Or were these who rose from the grave those who were recently dead so that they could recognize them yet, probably their bodies not yet decomposed? Or could it have been those who had been long dead, generations dead, centuries dead? Very interesting question. The Bible doesn't answer that question. Did the people who saw these recognize them? What did they say? Or didn't they speak? How long did they stay out of the tomb? Just Sunday? Maybe Monday? A week? A month? The Bible doesn't say. But there's very good reason that so little information is given because all the emphasis must fall on the little information that the Word of God gives. And that information includes six key elements. Number one, a great earthquake opened up graves. A great earthquake opened up graves. So you realize there were two earthquakes at this time. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You remember that there was that earthquake on Sunday morning. You might not remember that there was that earthquake also, another one on Friday afternoon. And an earthquake is a sign in the Bible of God's victory of the removal of what's old and the provision of what's new, the destruction of what's old and the recreation of new. An earthquake is a sign of judgment to destroy the old in order to provide for the new. An earthquake is a sign that this earth is movable, that this earth is temporary. And probably not many of us have experienced an earthquake. Here we're familiar with tornadoes, those terrifying winds that can destroy. In other parts of the world, you feel an earthquake and you feel very helpless. The earth shakes. There's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you can go. And that's why 
the earthquake is one of the primary signs in creation of the end of the world. You read the signs of the times in Matthew 24 and other places in the Scripture, and you find that one of the primary signs is earthquake, because this earth is movable. And God's kingdom is immovable. So it makes sense then, doesn't it, that not at the birth of Jesus was creation speaking in this way, but when the work of Jesus had just finished, when it came to a conclusion, then is the sign of victory of Jesus, of the destruction of the old, of judgment on wickedness, and the opening of the way for that which is new. God's kingdom is immovable. So by this earthquake then, graves were opened. By this sign of judgment and renewal, God reached down, as it were, and opened up graves. Graves in the time of Jesus were not what they are today for us. Today you visit a cemetery, and it's all smooth grass. Maybe a gravestone appearing, and under that smooth grass and gravestones is a casket in which the body was placed, the casket encased in a concrete vault, and then covered with six feet of dirt. But not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, they couldn't dig so easily. They had to carve or chisel out of the side, perhaps, of a hillside, a cave, or find a cave into which you could go and in the sides of that cave chisel out little spots where a body could go here and another body there. And then on the front of that cave would a stone be rolled so that no one could enter. It was in one of these caves, recently newly chiseled out of the hillside, that Jesus was buried. No other bodies, the Word of God said, had gone in that one. If you think of the cave of of Machpelah that Abraham purchased for the burial of his family, then you understand what burial practices were in those days. So when Christ died and the earthquake took place, God saw to it that the earth so shook that however it was, those burial places were opened, broken open, and if someone walked by, that someone could see in that grave the bodies that had been buried there. And in a gruesome sight for everyone to see. Dead bodies. That's the first part of the sign. An earthquake opened graves. The second aspect of the sign is that bodies arose because they were made alive. They climbed out of the graves. That wasn't a matter of their souls being raised up because their souls already were raised up. When they died, God took their soul to heaven just as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me that is in your soul in paradise, even though your body is going to go down into the grave. What happened now is not the resurrection of their soul, but the resurrection of their body. And the text makes that clear. 
The bodies were made alive. Very likely, though we can't say this with certainty, this was the final resurrection for these who were raised. It wasn't like the resurrection of Lazarus, who had been dead for three or four days, came out from the tomb, and then lived with his sisters until something else finally took his life. Old age or some other sickness as took him the first time. This was not like the resurrection of Lazarus. These people were raised very likely with their glorified bodies. With their bodies that were changed. So that they were translated up into heaven at some point. We don't know when. But you don't imagine them, do you? Climbing back at night into that grave in order there to die again? You don't imagine these saints who had been in heaven. I trust you believe that Lazarus was simply put to sleep for a few days and didn't experience the consciousness of heaven. But you don't imagine that these saints who knew heaven for a time, God would send back down and be in those bodies and then live again on this sinful, cursed, hurtful, painful earth, do you? And I ask those questions because you may, because the Bible doesn't say with certainty, but it's very likely that this is the final resurrection of these saints. They appeared, and then at the end of their service on earth, appearing to many, God took them body and soul into heaven. They had to appear. Remember, like Jesus appeared. He was here one moment and appeared there another moment. That's the word used in the text. And that's the second element of the sign. First, an earthquake opened the graves. Second, bodies arose out of the grave. And third, notice it wasn't a few, it was many. Don't miss the little words. Many bodies of the saints arose. Now, This wasn't the general resurrection so that everyone who was in the grave arose. That's going to happen at the very end of time when Jesus appeared. Then everyone will be raised from the dead. This wasn't that. This was an instance though of what would happen. A public showing of that for which we all hope. It wasn't the general resurrection, but neither was it a few who rose from the dead. It says many. How many? The Bible doesn't say. But two isn't many. And five isn't many. And ten isn't many. You can imagine dozens and dozens came out of the grave and went into the city. And that multitude, many, plays an important part in the sign significance. That's third. In the fourth place, the text says that saints arose. That's important too. This wasn't a random resurrection of those whose graves happened to open up when the earth shook and the cemeteries cracked open. This was, in the providence of God, a very specific opening of specific graves of specific people, and those specific people are called saints. Saints. And a saint is one who was separated from what's worldly, 
consecrated to what's godly and lived in the hope of the coming of the Messiah. So you can imagine that if you had been able at that time, some days later, to take a walk around Jerusalem and examine the cemeteries and maybe find the names on the gravestones and wrote them all down and went home to look at them and put together what made sense. This is what would make sense. Oh. Oh. That kind of person. I know them. I recognize these names. They were a unique kind of people. They wouldn't have found the names of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests. They would have found the names of Anna, Zacharias, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and people like that who were known for their piety in Jerusalem. They were saints. Fifth, they appeared. They went into the city and met people. Who's there? And they opened the door and they saw the dead saints now living. Who's there? And they appeared to many Imagine what was going on on Sunday morning and Sunday noon and Sunday evening and Monday. And as long as it took for God to accomplish His purpose in this amazing sign, they appeared. And then finally, the very important aspect of this sign, we've already mentioned, it took place after the resurrection. After the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits Afterwards, they that are Christ's, here too. Here too. First Christ, then others. And that's what the text says too. Many bodies of the saints which slept, arose, came out of the graves after His resurrection. So, you know why I say that God saw to it by inspiration that a little pinch of Easter Sunday is brought back into Good Friday history and found right here in our text. After the resurrection, they had to wait. Of course they had to wait. They couldn't arise before Jesus arose for this sign's purpose. What is the significance of this sign? Well, the significance of this sign is in part understood by the fact that it is back in the history of the cross. And therefore, the significance of this history is the significance of the cross's history. You must connect the cross and the resurrection together. Start there. The resurrection is impossible without the cross. And it's exactly because of the cross that you have the resurrection. God designed the one in order that there might be the other. The cross prepares 
for the resurrection. And the resurrection is the completion of the cross. The cross isn't defeat after which there's victory. The cross is the instrument by which we have the victory. Because of what Jesus did there. Dying. Could the saints arise then living because Jesus died. We may live first Christ and afterwards they that are Christ's at His coming. And therefore, as the cross is both positive and negative in its significance, it is. Now comes the judgment of the world in the cross. Now comes the salvation of the world in the cross. It's both that judgment and that salvation that appears in the appearing of these dead saints too. And so, it's Easter. It's Easter Sunday. It's a bright, beautiful Easter Sunday. Who can't love the shining of the sun and the coming again of spring and the promise of growth and flowers and fruit and all of the rest? Who can't delight in the beauty of being outside for a little while this afternoon to enjoy that warmth? Easter is a happy day even apart from that. But even on the happiest Easter's, there's judgment that must be spoken. And must be spoken now too. The significance of this sign is judgment for the unbeliever. In two ways. In the first place, Because the resurrection is a separation between the holy and the unholy. It was the saints that arose, not the others. There's no part in the resurrection for the unbelieving. And just as it will be in the day of the final resurrection, when everyone is raised, some to a resurrection of damnation, and others to a resurrection of life. So also, there's a twofold significance in this resurrection. There's a resurrection testimony of judgment to the unbeliever. That was true for the Jews. They were all of Israel, but they were not all Israel. And if you would have asked, who were they? Now, you're not a believer finding hope in this list of names, Anna, Elizabeth, Zacharias, John the Baptist. But now there's terror in this list of names. No Pharisees. No scribes. No chief priests. No enemies of Jesus. No opponents of His disciples are here on this list. This is judgment for us. We're not going to rise from the dead either. And right along with that negative significance for unbelievers that they're not going to arise is the twin truth that their cause is defeated. This resurrection of the saints and the appearance to many is a theodicy. 
That's a word you probably don't hear very often. It's a simple word that simply means a justification of God. Or, for you children, God is right. They're wrong. God's right. Theodicy. A public testimony that the cause of God is true and the cause of sinful, unbelieving man is a lie. God is right. That's what these saints were testifying. Now put that in the context of the day in which they lived. Put this in the context of the last three and a half years where the Lord Jesus, the teacher, prophet, who claimed to be the Messiah, was filling Jerusalem with his teaching. Put this in the context of the day when he had a large gathering of people. They followed him. They believed his teaching. And alongside of that, a large gathering of the leaders of the Jews who were opposed to Jesus, contradicted what he said, called him a liar, did everything that they could to undermine his cause, and said, you are of the devil. That's where you're from. And Jesus said, no, you are. Of the Father, your Father, the devil. Put this in that context. And what a horrifying testimony to the opponents of Jesus. What happened on Monday of the Passion Week? Of course, Thursday night was the Last Supper. Friday was the crucifixion. Saturday he was in the grave. Sunday he arose from the dead. What happened on Monday? Lazarus was raised from the dead. What was the response of the wicked Jews to that resurrection of Lazarus? They got together, made a plan, and said one man must die for the people. We can't put up with this any longer. Now we have no longer those who were lame walking, blind seeing, deaf hearing, and paralyzed handling. Now we have dead raised. And that's a powerful testimony of the rightness of His cause. We need to kill Jesus. And so they did. At the end of that week, they finally accomplished their purpose. And they wiped their hands and were relieved that they were finished. And the very next Sunday, you didn't have one Lazarus appearing to people saying, I was dead and now I'm alive. You have dozens and dozens of people appearing saying, we were dead and we're alive and we are because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. They tried to kill a seed by planting that seed in the ground. And what happened is that that seed multiplied. First Christ rises from the dead and then those that are Christ's with Him. Many saints appeared in the city and they appeared to many people. Imagine the terror that was in the hearts of the leaders on that same day. They had just gotten together to fabricate that story with the guards and washed their hands again and said, good, we've got that taken care of. Gave them large sums of money to lie. And so the guards go around saying, the disciples stole the body. We don't know where it is, but we were sleeping on the job and he's gone. And so that's the story that was being spread. And now, you don't have three or four guards spreading a lie. You have dozens and dozens of people testifying of the truth. 
And the truth is, Christ lives. The man who's been teaching you for three and a half years was right. The cause of God is vindicated. God is justified. That's theodicy. Now imagine you being one of those people who were complicit in the death of Christ. And Sunday morning, the first day of the week, which is the work week for you in those days. The Sabbath is finished. That was Saturday. First day of the work week comes. It's the Sabbath. Who's there? And now you're Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate opens his door. And who does he see? But one of Jesus' disciples. They didn't need to say anything. Their appearance was a sermon. Christ lives, and because Christ lives, I live, and the cause of Christ is right and will not be defeated. Now you're Herod. You're Herod, who had just put to death John the Baptist within the past year or two taken off his head at the request of your wife who hated John the Baptist because John the Baptist testified against your wicked marriage. Now you're Herod. Who's there? And Herod opens the door and it's John the Baptist. Of course, we're imagining. Of course, we don't know that with certainty. But the Bible doesn't say anything specific. We only need to imagine to make this clear to us what happened. Many bodies of the saints arose and went into the city and appeared to many. To many. Many arose. And they all had their assignment. Go through the neighborhood and show who you are. You were dead and now you're alive. And say, maybe with your voice, but maybe with simply your body. Everyone knew you were a disciple of Jesus. Some of you. Maybe others who were dead longer ago. But they appeared as a testimony that the cause of Christ is right. And the cause of unbelief is going to be put down. Is wrong. Now do you know why one of the epistles Colossians 2 talks about Christ making an open show of His enemies. An open show. Publicly, He shamed them. And they knew it. What a horrifying day. That Easter day for unbelievers. But for others, it was not horrifying at all. But a cause of greatest, greatest hope. And the hope and the joy for the people of God who saw these saints, the people of God who saw these saints, was marvelous. Our cause that we thought went down in defeat is now up in victory. The cause that we believed in and stood for, the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ whom we listened to for the past three and a half years, The cause that we embraced and believed was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. 
The cause that we thought was finished. Let's go fishing. Let's go back to our old occupation. Now is justified and victorious. And we are a part of that cause. And this. The saints maybe who are on their deathbed. Who's there? I can't get the door. Come in. Dying saints. And other saints who had died and came in and spoke to them. Not a word, but just this. We're followers of Jesus. We believe Him. We embrace Him. And though you are going to die in your body, you are going to live again like I live again. Have hope, beloved brother or sister in Jesus in your body. This is a powerful testimony in the Word of God for Resurrection Sunday that we ought to emphasize every time we go to the grave and recite the Apostles' Creed, you get to the end of the Apostles' Creed and say, and the resurrection of the body. And pause. And think. And then take the body of your loved one and put it down in the grave. We have hope that this our body will be raised again. This body, this weak body, this decaying body, this perishing body, this pain-filled body, this disease-riddled body, this body, this one, not another one, this one, will be raised from the dead and live forever with His saints because Jesus lived. Saints, though, saints, the recipients of these blessings and of this hope are saints. Only saints. Now two things to qualify that so that you don't misunderstand what the Word of God is saying here. Bodies of the saints which slept arose. The first clarification is that they didn't rise because they were saints. That would put the reason for salvation in them. In them. And the reason for salvation, whatever aspect of it, is never in us. They didn't rise because they were saints. They rose because of Jesus. And the second qualification, be very clear here, is that a saint is not someone who's perfect. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. A saint is someone who has so risen in his sanctification that he's probably almost sinless. And only a few people in the history of the world ever attain sainthood. That's not what the Bible means when it speaks of saints. It means the kind of people like you and your children who love God. Genuinely love God. The kind of people like you and your children who because you love God hate sin. You hate sin. 
You don't want anything to do with sin. When you sin, you're sad about that. You repent of it. You cry over it. You cling to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because of it. And you say, my sin separates between me and my God. And I don't want to be separated from God. I want to be consecrated to God, devoted to Him. That's the definition of a saint. Now, it's those people who had hope in the day of Jesus. And it's those people who have hope today. Not Israel, that is those who are of Israel, but it's those who truly are Israel who can go home tonight in peace. As in the days of Jesus, there were many who hung on to the church because of social matters, family ties, or simply because that's where we were born, but they didn't want anything to do with the heart of the church. And there probably are still those today too. Maybe here. There's no hope for you. There's hope for you who are holy. That is for you who love God, hate sin, and love the church of the Lord Jesus. Who because of your sin are sorry and cling to Jesus for forgiveness. And if you don't, You don't have any hope tonight. And the call of the Gospel is to you to repent and believe. If perhaps for the very first time, you can go home tonight broken, sorry, and forgiven. You, you are a recipient of this great blessing. You may live in hope. And you, when you are dying, may die in hope. Even if that's tonight on the way home and you feel your heart constricting and in a panic you say, this is the end of me. I'm finished. But I'm not afraid because I'm dying in Jesus. I lived in Jesus. And I'm going to sleep in Jesus. And in this my body, I will rise from the dead. Hope. Hope. Easter hope. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of all who sleep in Him. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, speak to our hearts by Thy Word. Break us who are hardened in our sin. Work by the grace and power of Thy Holy Spirit to work repentance in us. That every day all of us may go home broken. And every day all of us may go to bed at night and sleep in peace. Because Thou alone art able to Give us that peace. In Jesus Christ we pray. For the sake of His work we plead. On the basis of His righteousness we ask. Heavenly Father, have mercy to us and to our children. In Jesus' name, Amen.